sequel would be just as good as the original. Even my mum said, she goes, I can't watch you two teams go bloody play anymore. <laughs> you know, I'm just, she's just a nervous wreck watching the games. And, and with this is no disrespect for the Eagles. It was sort of the ultimate talent versus the ultimate team. I remember going out to Roosie pre-game and we just looked at each other and went, here we go again. It's probably <laughs> going to be another tight one. And, and we just had a smile and walked off our ways to say, let's see where it's at in two hours' time. Welcome once again to At The G. I'm Anthony Hudson and as we get closer to this year's AFL Grand Final and the reality of what we're missing out on sinks in, we'll try and fill that hole in a small way by going back to another classic finish to a season past at our famous ground. It's the second part of our special on the incredible rivalry between Sydney and West Coast. And after the tension and drama of 2005 and the Leo Barriou star moment, it's still quite staggering that the same two teams could produce yet another heart-stopping epic. While the story of the 2006 Grand Final is complicated by the troubles of several of the West Coast Eagles stars, there was also scepticism on field that coach John Worsfold could lead them to a flag. I remember clearly being told that we couldn't win the Premiership because we're too predictable. Teams knew what we were going to do and they're going to plan for it. As always, just making it to grand final day was a triumph for some. And we'll look back on the golden moments for a small forward who was wounded in the Bali bombings and the wingman who missed out on the big day in 2005 because of serious injury and went to crazy lengths to make sure it didn't happen again. I just missed the grand final. You know, I haven't really told many people this, but with the altitude tent, it's very dangerous to go down that low. Um, a bit of shrapnel shoot up my foot and at the back of my head from the glass window panel. Um, and to be, still be able to run and play football, I was very lucky. Well, this podcast is all about celebrating the feats on the field at our favourite ground and the likes of Eagles coach John Worsfold, Swans coach Paul Ruse and star players Chris Judd, Dean Cox, Mick O'Loughlin and Brett Kirk will do just that. But the sad drama surrounding West Coast star and Brownlow medalist Ben Cousins had started to unfold by 2006. Cousins had already been stripped of the captaincy leading into the season following a drink-driving incident. Veteran Perth reporter and commentator Tim Gossage had covered WA football all his working life and he was on the boundary in the grand final for Channel 10. Goss, what was the situation at that stage with Cousins and the Eagles? I genuinely think we felt at the time that 
it had all everyone had moved on from him being deposed what his future was at the football club Judd had taken the captaincy Cousins was still absolutely paramount to their success I suppose we lived in somewhat of a uh, with blinkered how bad it was what the rumors were how long those rumors had been going around fact is they had made it uh, he was still playing great footy and Judd was the consummate captain Warsfold is the favorite son he could do no wrong people had almost forgotten about all the controversy and where ben was in his life ben's life had certainly spiraled out of control at various stages into that grand final it's been well documented but there had been a lot of hard work done by a lot of other people yeah well ben had been captain and uh, obviously we'd changed the captaincy for obvious reasons ben wasn't towing the the line in terms of the culture that we wanted um, at the level we needed and certainly as club captain. So um, we'd made the strong decision to to change that. But he was still a very integral part of um, how hard we'd work to get to that grand final. Or a lot of people generally just, you know, look at things in a one-dimensional way. So Ben, particularly with the troubles he's had post-football, just see him as a, um, as a drug addict. But, you know, there's a lot more nuance and there's a lot more to Ben Cousins than than just that part of his story. And for me, Ben was, was the guy I was able to, to look at the way he prepared and the way he trained and the obsessiveness he brought to his preparation. And that was just, it was just like a gift from God. For me as a, as a young player, you know, I, I was pretty motivated myself, but to, to see the, I guess the thought that he put into his preparation, he didn't just follow the training that he was told to do from coaches or fitness staff. He had a really clear plan that desire to own your own preparation is something that really stood with me and to be able to have uh, him as that you know that cultural hero as far as training and preparation went was incredibly important for me as a footballer as well well not surprisingly the 2005 grand final defeat had left the Eagles hungry to go one better as they returned to the training track ahead of the 2006 season. On day one of pre-season, we had sort of like 75% of players run PBs on their beep tests. And I probably didn't appreciate just how hard that group worked at the time because I had no reference point in terms of other, other AFL clubs. The amount of extra running and training that that group did on their own time, uh, you know, away from coaches' eyes, not to please anyone but purely born out of a desire to get better was was just incredible and um yeah you could tell and i actually think most years you can tell on day one of pre-season what the appetite of the group really is to to improve it's more about the opportunity to experience that situation again that that was more of it is you know we get there this year we should be good enough again next year but yeah just to experience the whole week and the the occasion again and and hopefully get the result different drove certainly drove me and uh, i spoke to a few other teammates that was the same for them as well what was Wusher like then through this period as a coach and, and indeed you know after the loss in 05 oh the good you know the best part about Wush is that he had a vision in mind and he wanted to to win a premiership as a as a coach and for our playing group and everything just resorted back to that and some of the values and I suppose the trademark stuff that we set up and um, he just r rallied right behind 
you know, what was required in that area, and then everything else took care of itself. One man with extra motivation was 27-year-old wingman Michael Braun, who'd experienced heartbreak by missing the 2005 Grand Final after suffering a serious but mysterious knee injury in the preliminary final win against Adelaide. I was devastated for um, the Sunday, Monday, Tuesday. Like I, was, I said, I was seriously going to witch doctors up in Hillary's in Perth and I was going to see him uh, the Monday and the Tuesday back to back, just like kind of black magic kind of stuff. And the footy club didn't even know I was doing it. I'm 27 years of age. I've been playing football my whole life since I was five and all I wanted to do was play in a grand final and I, I, my team's in it and I've fallen over. I was shattered. I had a bit of a life coach from then, a guy called Steve Stanley. You know, he was a, an ex-soldier and all that. So he was just a, a, someone I could lean on. And the one thing that we did say together that I couldn't bring my unhappiness or my sadness or, you know, whatever I had, that, that real bad feeling amongst the playing group. I ended up getting surgery on that following Tuesday. It was a six to nine month layoff. It was pretty much as severe as a reconstruction, but didn't have the kind of the reputation as, as a real severe injury because no one had ever seen it or heard of it. I was in a splint from my ankle to right up high as my thigh for 16 weeks. Um, I wasn't allowed to bend my knee for 16 weeks. So I had to have this brace on my, on my leg for 23 hours of the day and 57 minutes so I could only take it off when I had a shower and that was only for three minutes and I put it straight back on because I, if I fell, it would, it would um, loosen the, the graft or whatever it, they attached it. So at my home, I pulled everything out of my bedroom, set up this high altitude tent, like, you know, you see Collingwood go to Colorado and all that to, yeah. to go training and that. So this was pre all that. This was, you know, these, these tents were about 25 grand each. And this tent's like a big, it's as big as your room. It was huge and then it had a pump and it was pumping all the oxygen out um, and lowering the altitude, which the more oxygen in your body, the faster you heal your body. I was uh, a prisoner in my own home all of November, all of December. I, I, could, I couldn't do anything because I was on crutches. I couldn't even carry um, a, my bowl, the milk, my cereal from the fridge to my dining table in my house. I was in a shitty mood and I, uh, I had just missed the grand final. You know, everyone was still hurting and, and I couldn't get out and train. And being an athlete, athletes like to do them, their things themselves. They don't like anyone helping them. They, they want to get up and moving. They don't like being injured. They don't like being a caged animal. And that's what I was like. So I had my girlfriend's mum come up every morning to get, just to get my milk and cereal out of the, um, out of the fridge. Yeah, I, I watched the whole Sopranos in a week, like the whole series. I was, I was watching like eight episodes a day. Like, you know, I had nothing else to do. And, um, you know, I was drinking Coronas like there was no tomorrow. And till this day, from, from the, that injury, I don't like drinking Coronas because I drank so much of them in those thrills. I was just angry and I was hurt and I was frustrated. It was just, I wasn't a good place. It worked for you though, didn't it? I mean, you actually got back to play a game in the pre-season before the main stuff began. You know, I haven't really told many people this, but with the altitude tent, it's very dangerous to go down that low. So we had a whole system, <laughs> um, like a, a program to follow. So, you know, 22% altitude, and then I'd go down 21 and a half, 21, and then I'd go 20.9, 20.7, and I had to go down slowly because if you go down too fast, things can happen. And so I didn't go down from 22 to 12 straight away, but I was kind of doctoring the, the statistics a little bit because I wanted to get back quick. So 
even though I was saying that oxygen, the, the temp was at, say, 19.6, well, it might, might have been at, you know, 17. Ah. So I went down further than I should have, longer than I should have, but it helped me. I was in that for three months, Mahato, three months. So I'd go to bed and my girlfriend at the time wouldn't sleep in the tent because it was too hard for her. Uh, I'm a bit of an OCD. I, I just, I knew it was going to help me. And whatever I knew was going to help me, I was going to do it and do, do more than what's required of me. We'll just step away for a moment from our story of the 2006 AFL Grand Final to let you know about a special episode coming up as we get an insight into a man who coached Richmond to four premierships at the G, the great Tom Hafey. You'll hear a never-before-played interview with Hafey, as well as words from his old star player and great mate, the legendary Kevin Bartlett. The MCG, as far as Tommy was concerned, was very important in his own coaching philosophy. So the Tigers moving to the G at the start of Tommy's reign was perfect, KB. It changed the destiny of the Richmond Football Club. No doubt about that. It gave the Richmond Football Club a bit of stature. We train very hard because I really believe in fitness and we're always probably the fittest side in the competition, but also the style. No finessing. I'm not a brain surgeon. Just a hard straight at the ball. And I think the game is still basically that way. I'm very aware that the players are human beings. I don't embarrass them or humiliate them. And I think, well, if I've got anything to say, it's between me and the player. Do you miss him, KB? Yes, uh, I, miss him, I miss him a lot. Um, we used to speak every day on the phone. When he was coaching the Tigers, for 10 years we had lunch three times a week at the, uh, the old Commonwealth cafeteria. He was, he was a great friend. He was a great family friend. The whole Hafey family are great friends of the Bartlett. We spent so much time together. You know, I miss him every day. It's no wonder Michael Braun was so desperate to get back and play and be part of the incredible rivalry between the Eagles and Swans. At one stage, the two sides played six matches, including four finals and two grand finals, with just 13 points in total separating the teams. Always build on that respect through that, you know, it probably started even the start of 05 and, you know, the finals we played against them in both those years, they were always close. The grand finals were incredibly close, as we know, the, the level of respect. And I think because we played differently, there was um, – we were certainly respected what they did and they respected what we did. It was different, but it added to the, you know, the, the level of respect that we had. You know, that was the thing with, with Sydney. We knew – exactly what Sydney were going to, Sydney knew exactly what we were going to be doing and it was like, let's bring it on. You knew what you were going to get from West Coast. You were going to get a war out in the Oval and then, and I mean that, no disrespect, it is just one of those things where you just knew this game was going to be so bloody hard to get a kick. Very rarely did any of the teams broken it, got down to one kick, one mark, one tackle and if you played well in these games, you could play well in any, any of the other games against other opposition and people around Australia knew exactly how this was going and they got in their seat, they, they got their beer and they got their chips and they were on the edge of their seat for you know the next two hours. It was just incredible. And like even my mum said, she goes, I can't watch you two teams go bloody play anymore. You go, you know, you, you, I'm just, she's just a nervous wreck watching the games. And I think every football fan around Australia loved watching those games, whether you supported the teams or not. I really felt it was a reflection of both sides. Uh, it was a period where teams were flooding fairly heavily 
and both West Coast and Sydney were two teams that didn't get into the flooding. We're quite happy to just keep manning up opposition players and making it making them tight contests. And our real weapon was our midfield. Teams would often want to quickly get numbers behind the ball because, you know, Cox hitting the ball anywhere down the ground to, to Cousins, Judd, Fletcher, Kerr, Stengline. Um, teams were smart enough to know maybe we're going to be supported by having an extra number behind the ball and we would often man that up and, and I got questioned a lot about that. It was My answer really was around, well, I didn't give too much away at the time, but the theory was that why are we going to give the opposition an advantage in our forward line? Like we didn't have a star-studded forward line, you know, Ash Hansen, Quentin Lynch, Rowan Jones, Steve Armstrong. They weren't superstars, but they benefited from a lot of entries and good entries from that midfield. So we didn't want the opposition to diminish our chance of scoring and taking away our midfield dominance. So we would man it up and say, we're happy to go seven on seven in our forward line. And if you send another one, we'll probably man him up as well. You copped it too, didn't you, from some of the experts in the media? I remember clearly being told with maybe five or six rounds to go that we couldn't win the premiership because we're too predictable. Teams knew what we were going to do and they're going to plan for it. And my answer was, well, teams have been trying to do that all year and we're still on top of the ladder and we're going to back in that we'll deal with. They know what we're going to do. We know what they're going to do and we're going to respond with what works for us. We're not going to now try and reinvent something and do something different because for the last five rounds of the season in the finals because I know what the outcome of that would have been and it would have been disastrous to think we could uh, change something up and get expert at it in five or six weeks. So we were quite comfortable that teams understanding the way we played and coming and trying to stop that, we we were still going to be good enough to win um, playing to our strengths. Seven on seven in our forward line. If you send another one, we'll probably man him up as well. Did the criticism get under your skin or did you think it just went with the territory? Yeah, I absolutely thought it goes with the territory, but I, I certainly listened to it, you know, and it does challenge you. You hear these questions raised and you respect the people who are talking about it. So you would sit there and think, are they onto something? What do we do here? Do we do we need to change? We want to win this premiership and what's going to be the way to go? We did change our game plan subtly uh, late in 2006. We um, ramped up our use of handball, starting from a game against Adelaide, who were our, probably our main threats at that point at Subiaco Oval and you know throughout the remainder of that year we were our number of handballs were up 20 or 30 percent on what they had been in the earlier part of the year except against Sydney because again Sydney played a different style the teams that were flooding we went handball mad against them but against Sydney when it was more tighter you couldn't go into a handball game so yeah we had adjusted a little bit but more so against the the flooding teams we were going to stick to what we did against Sydney The Eagles finished on top of the ladder at the end of the home and away season, but this time lost the qualifying final in another thriller against the Swans before thrashing the Western Bulldogs in semi-final week, meaning they'd come up against the same preliminary final opponent as 2005. Well, we had Adelaide in the prelim final again. That was probably my finest win, and that's one of the most, the best wins I've ever been involved in as a player, other than the grand final, um, obviously. To beat them for the second year in a row in a prelim final, given the fact we were four goals down at three-quarter time, was huge. You kind of think to yourself, you know what, we've earned being in this grand final and we've knocked off Adelaide for the second year in a row and now we're in the big dance. And it was kind of relief for me as well because, yeah, it was a dream come true. I, I finally 
got to where a place and like 12 months ago I, there was no way I was getting going anywhere near it, uh, even playing football again well, the unknown wasn't there you know I think the magnitude of a grand final and tickets from family and you know the the logistics that have to happen from coming from interstate we we knew what was going on uh, we'd experienced the year before and you know so it probably made the the week a little bit feel a bit more normal than the 05 grand final lead-in did so the preparation stuff was one thing but yeah you sort of thought you know we were confident going in we'd overcome you know lost to sydney in the first final we beat adelaide away from home coming from behind and I think most of the players just had a huge amount of belief and confidence in their ability. Yeah, I think that feeling of the unknown was gone, as you'd expect, but there probably was starting to, whereas the year before it didn't feel like we had much to lose coming from eighth. There was a, a level of heaviness around what if we don't win this one, you know, how many more chances will there be? So I think that had started to, to creep in to the group and certainly personally. It was special. Obviously, I'm a, I'm a Victorian, so and I grew up barracking for Collingwood um, my whole life. My old man was a Collingwood member, and the MCG was um, a place where we used to go and Waverley Park and all that. And to walk out on the MCG knowing that, you know, you're the last two teams. And pregame was awesome. Like we, Glass and I always kind of did our thing together. We always hung around, and, and we always were in the same group. And, you know, when we run around the ground and that, we always be side by side talking. We're doing our slow jog, slow warm up. You know, we're talking like 45 minutes before the game. So the, the, the ground, the G wasn't packed at that stage. It was only half full. And we said, look at this, you know, look where we are. You know, this is, this is awesome, blah, blah, blah. And then we went down into the change rooms and, and then we ran up the race and just, just the roar of the crowd was enormous. Uh, and that's something I'll never, ever, ever forget. And you'd never hear the crowd when the game is on. You are so focused on your job at hand that you don't hear the crowd. You hear the crowd when the ball goes through the goals or the ball goes over the boundary line. 70% of the time, you don't hear the crowd. And as much as they yell and scream from the grandstands, you never hear them. It's bizarre. And you were extra motivated to play well against the Swans, weren't you? See, Sydney were my bogey side. Sydney were the ones that they always used to tag me heavily and stop my run and and I never used to play good and, and, and that went on for years that was you know it was a running joke at the footy club especially through Coxie and Glassy um, they said oh Brawny we're playing Sydney you may as well stay home today you know like because you know like I, I never used to get in the double digits I never used to get more than 10 touches they used to just close me down close my run and they knew that that my run was very important to West Coast you know to, to the link of the back to the forwards and um my, my uh, life coach, uh, Steve Stanley, we, grand final week, he goes, what are you going to do to combat? Who's going to come to you? You know, it's usually um, Fosdyke because he's the only one that could run. And I said, you know what, Steve? I'm just going to run him. I'm just going to run him and I'm going to run as hard as I can for as long as I can. And I'm going to try and, I'm just going to get him mentally and I'm just going to make sure that he knows that he's playing on me and I'm not going to let him beat me. Because I just couldn't have another game where Sydney was going to get hold of me. And, um, and I had... Uh, a fairly decent game. And John, there was an unexpected drama for you on the morning of the match. Tyson Stengline got uh, ill the night before the grand final in 06 and uh, and was on the toilet all night vomiting with diarrhoea. And I remember in the morning, the, the docs hadn't worried me about it throughout the night, but in the morning they said, 
you know, Stenglon's been ill all night, hasn't slept. Unless he can get some food down in the next hour and keep it down, he's not playing. So, you know, you've never seen a coach, like, looking at a player, watching him trying to eat his breakfast so closely <laughs> and to make sure he's getting some food in. And then the follow-up is, okay, well, we have to now wait and see if he can keep his food down. If uh, if that comes back up, then he's going to be ruled out. So it was almost like we just had to wait till we were getting on the bus and say, How, is Stenglon going to be right or not? And he... You know, he was a player that we gave a massive workload to. We very rarely took him off the ground. He played, generally played full minutes, and he he put a massive job in for us in that game and was uh, was ill for days afterwards. Back to the 2006 AFL Grand Final in a moment. But do keep a lookout for a bonus episode which features more of the MCG memories of Chris Judd and John Worsfold. Um, I don't know if it sounds a bit, a bit too emotive, but it, it does start to feel that the connection between the crowd and, and you as a player is just incredibly close. It's almost, you really do feel that energy surge through your veins. But, but in those games, you know, particularly if they're against a big rival and it's close, the roar just, it, it sort of goes right through your body and um, and you can't help but be energised by it. On the morning of the game when he said, no, we're not going to go with you, you know, that that's probably why it became more of a story and that people expected that I was going to be playing and I, a lot of my teammates were waiting to see if I was getting changed in the uh, in the rooms, maybe in the old Richmond rooms. So it became a bigger story than that. But I would have gone out and given it everything. But uh, the match committee have to make the call on, especially in finals. Uh, for me, the memories that come back are, are largely about family, funnily enough. Um, you know, going to the football, mostly the football with my dad, going to the games now with my son, uh, and we go to cricket, you know, we go to Boxing Day every year, the two of us. I guess those traditions that build up in your life, you know, they end up carrying a lot of importance for, for lots of people. When the big game began, another close contest was widely assumed. The opening quarter, though, saw the Eagles take the initiative and take their chances with the big guns blazing. Hunter, across to Cousins. He's been running all year and he's finishing strongly. They booted four goals, two to the Wayward Swans, just one four, with forward Ash Hansen kicking two of the majors. He was another player who midway through the year was struggling for form and we sat down and had a good chat with him and tried to work out why why he was struggling and, you know, we had a good open conversation around it and he uh, turned everything around from that point and, um, you know, gave us a really good start in that grand final. The second term saw Andrew Embley and Quinton Lynch prominent as the lead blew out to as much as 31 points at one stage. But Nick Davis and Michael O'Loughlin kept the Swans in the game on either side of the main break. And when Davis booted his third after another run of behinds, there was just 11 points in it and the stage was set for another nail-bite. All or nothing now for the Swans and the West Coast Eagles. Will it be back-to-back for the Swans? Oh, will John Worsfold and the Eagles get over the line? We'll know in 30 minutes' time as McVay gives Hall and the Swans the first chance. They are going as the Brownlow man. The Brownlow man! Alan Goods! Oh, they can sense it now. How 
quick was that? Well, we were up and we knew they were going to come out of Sydney. And the first first four or five minutes and Goods gets it out of the centre and kicks a goal. We thought, oh no, here they come again. Oh, I just remember being a mixture of completely exhausted, really sore. I had a shoulder that had dislocated earlier on in the game. So I was, well, I was pretty useless the second half and I was playing on Adam Goods. So that's a pretty horrible combo. Um, <laughs> to be maimed, maimed, exhausted and playing on, on Goodsy. So um, it was quite unique back then, because back then really the better midfields in the competition would get tagged every week. So you'd essentially be playing on someone that often wasn't even trying to get the ball themselves. Their sole focus was to defend you. So I really enjoyed the challenge of playing against, uh, against Goodsy. We, we played on each other quite a few times and he was you know, a wonderful player, but just such an incredible athlete. He was. You know, 196, lightning quick and could run all day. So that was always a, a huge challenge. Even that grand final day, one of my memories is after I did hurt my shoulder, coming back on the ground and Goodsy could see, you know, something had, had, had gone awry. And he just said, are you okay? And I said, yeah, yeah, I'm fine. And it was an interesting, just an interesting subplot that he asked that question at a time when he would have been within his rights to, you know, elbow me in the shoulder and, and pop it out again or, and I wouldn't have begrudged him that either if that's how he chose to tackle it. But it was just interesting that that was the approach he took on. You know, it was a really important day for both of us. By early in the last quarter, the Swans had clearly wrestled back the momentum and what had once again become a brutal physical grind. Adam Snyder kicked another goal at the 16-minute mark to cut the Eagles' lead to just a point. They sort of come and rallied and had ebbed and flowed and... There's memorable moments all the way through it, but, you know, some of the clutch ones really stand out. The first of those critical moments involved a player who in some ways was lucky to be on the MCG that day at all. Not only was the selection of 22-year-old small forward Stephen Armstrong a close call, but four years earlier, his career and even his life could have ended in Bali. The then 18-year-old had been on a footy trip with Melbourne at the conclusion of his first AFL season when a terrorist bomb blast tore apart the Sari Club and killed more than 200 people. Armstrong was wounded, but after treatment, was able to return and play football the following year. I was very lucky to probably be at the start of my career and um, I ended up with a finger behind my knee and um, a bit of shrapnel shoot up my foot and at the back of my head from the glass window panel. Um, and to be still be able to run and play football, I was very lucky. I'm very fortunate because it was a case of Steve Fever was at the other end of the spectrum where his footy career was going, um, finishing up. So to be around 40-plus players and mates every day when I got back from Bali, it really did help me um, along and to get going. Um, and saying that, I always had a quarter zone probably once every six months in the lower back just to get up and going. Um, but the youth, the youthfulness of still being able to run and play football and the mates I had around me was certainly good. Were you able to sort of mentally cope with it okay? Because I was young, I wasn't ignorant of the situation because I found that I was very lucky, extremely lucky, as was all of us. I think Melbourne, Geelong and Fremantle were all in the area at the same time. So football just was a great um, avenue to that I was still able to play um, and that certainly helped me. Um, being a young fellow and whether it was going through Bali, I, I did miss home. I did miss being around family and friends as well. West Coast, I was picked up as a sort of a mature age rookie, but still pretty young. So hopefully play some good football for him. You know, we'd weighed up heavily 
Armstrong or Lacroix playing in that role. Both of them had kicked a bag of goals in the last game of the last home and away game of the season. I think we had a really good win, and Lacroix might have kicked five, and Armstrong kicked four. And unfortunately, Mark Lacroix hadn't been able to shake any of the Sydney defensive shackles in games against them. I think he'd gone goalless against Sydney in two games that year. Um, we'd we'd re rookie listed Stephen Armstrong after he'd been delisted by Melbourne. And Lacroix was an exciting up-and-coming player, so debated heavily which way we want to go. There were some good battles. I had to play good football to keep in. So I was on the rookie list for about half the season and I ended up playing the last 10 out of the 11 games. So what held me in good stead was probably that four years with Melbourne beforehand. Luckily, my best game of football for that year was probably the first final versus Sydney. Um, so therefore that probably held me in good stead because I was pretty nervous because against that mate I don't think I, I didn't play much in that game the nerves settled a lot because I had uh, Wushy come and tell me earlier in the week that I'll be playing But then you started on the bench didn't you and in those days you could stay there for long periods of time I found myself extremely nervous sitting on the bench for the game because I felt like a West Coast Eagles supporter and just hoping the ball bounced this way or that way but as soon as I was on the ground and nerves they did cease a little bit and knew what you had to do Luckily, Matthews went back in line with and got caught up a little bit and it spilt over. And luckily, I was nice and clean and whacked it on the boot and it bounced through because it might have been pretty close to check if it hit the post. But um, I did some sort of celebration that um, I teased about for a little bit. I kind of punched the air, but didn't punch it too well. Uh, just pure elation, just jubilation. And honestly, just to play a small part just was a huge relief and it was an amazing feeling. So when Stephen Armstrong kicked that goal, it felt like, oh, well, he's he's done his job. That's what he's in the team for, grab an opportunity, and he's grabbed that. They must um, be pretty satisfying moments as, as a coach, I would imagine. Yeah, they are. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, Stephen deserved his spot on the side, and there was, you know, there was no extra pressure on him. But, um, you know, it was just he, he was a classy player and it was a classy goal against the tight, tough Sydney back, back line. That's what we needed. And, yeah, that, that certainly was a, is a strong memory. The Armstrong goal gave the Eagles the lead by seven points and belief that they could still score. But the Swans answered immediately with an incredible 45-metre goal from close to the boundary by Ryan O'Keefe that somehow eluded the defenders in the goal square. It was back to one point with five minutes to go and a spellbound MCG crowd held their breath with Daniel Chick about to prove his incredible resilience, toughness and determination. Out wide to Braun. Here we go, the five-minute warning. The Eagles lead Sydney by a point. Stendline. Buchanan put the head down. Got it out to O'Keefe. Kick smothered. Chick. Great smother. The hardness, the smother, full body smother. Sets it up with a handball, then puts the shepherd on. The complete bit of one percentage play. Well done, Daniel Chick. It was back to a seven-point lead. But again, the Swans responded. This time, a snap by Nick Malczewski, which left the game hanging by just a point. 
with West Coast in front, but Sydney threatening. There was another effort of Daniel Chick, he and Teddy Richards, just fighting each other, running down into the Sydney forward line, and both of them were just out on their feet in the end. And I reckon they, they either had a head clash eventually, but they, they competed for this ball, and both of them were struggling to get up off the ground. They were just physically exhausted. Um, and I remember thinking, we're going to try and get Chick off the ground. He, he's got nothing. He can't run another step. But... Uh, to get the message out to him and to get him off the ground in the, the state of the game was almost impossible. So I think he was still out there at the end. I also remember Bo Waters taking a really good mark going back with the flight of the ball late in the game, you know, maybe with five minutes to go. And he'd, he'd hurt his shoulder in the game and had it strapped up, but uh, you know, still went back courageously to take a strong grab for us. And, and he was only a real young player in that team. With a minute 45 remaining, Adam Goods kicks it long into the pocket. But Andrew Embley really capped off his incredible game, didn't he, with that superb mark back with the flight. And from there, it looked like you were going to be able to control the footy down the southern side of the MCG, but there would still be one heart-stopping moment. I think the Curry, when he kicks it across the ground in the middle, and then Rowan Jones runs through, halves the ball, and gets it over to the, to the wing on the far side. The contest by rights should have really been run by the, the three Sydney players. The kick didn't, didn't hit the target. But Rowan Jones was just able to dig in and against three players. But I just remember that contest. If it had have gone the other way, you know, certainly Sydney would have been would have been back-to-back premiers and <laughs> Curry would have found it, it pretty hard to, to get over it. So thankfully for, for all of us, um, that went the right way. We just knew that we weren't going to let him win for some reason. Like we, we knew it was going to be tough, but we just knew we weren't going to we weren't going to let him beat us for a second year in a row. Coxie jumping around. Pure excitement and then probably relief. It finally happened and after the year before and the disappointment that you get, I finished the same spot on the ground as I did the year before but with completely different emotions. We didn't really know what was the outcome was going to be until that siren went. So, you know, it's just all the emotion that catches up with you for everything that you've done to get there. And yeah, it was just instinct and raw emotion, which is great. You know, makes everything worthwhile and yeah, it's an unbelievable feeling. Just Complete relief and exhaustion um, and almost sensory overload. Just almost felt like just, just lying down in a dark room and just sort of basking in the glory. And, you know, eventually we went, went back to the rooms and they're, they're full of supporters and family and that's all wonderful. But that moment to finally get to a, a quiet section, if you like, with some of the other players and, and have a drink and a chat, yeah, that, that moment was, was just incredibly special. Sorry, Wayne. Hands in the air, 
just pure jubilation and then the emotions do a full cycle and you see your family and friends and it was just an awesome feeling. You know, I've got a beautiful photo of myself and Darren Glass um, after the game. It, it's it's one of the most cherished photos I've got, um, Glassy and I. He's one of my best mates and, uh, yeah, it was just uh, memories, mate, and, and, you know, that's all you can you have now. Proud of what they, that playing group had done because there'd been question marks on them. You know, we had faced a bit of adversity throughout that year and also the questions around... Uh, you're too predictable and some people didn't like the way we played and we were prepared to back ourselves in and stick with it. So like the match committee was so supportive. We, we were really tight. So celebrating with them in the box straight after the game uh, was just amazing. Goss, it's pretty special to be out there after the siren, isn't it? Yeah, 100%. And I grew up with Wusher. I mean, Wusher and I came through our football journeys in my early days of Channel 10. And he was in early days of being a West Coast Eagle with you know guys like McKenna and Sumich and, and all those boys. So just to see him coach and have come so close the year before. And, and just the fact is that you at the coalface the whole time covering football, presenting or being an on-the-road journo, the chill of being on the ground with 100,000 people in the stands on the, the, the number one sporting contest in Australian sport and at the venue of the MCG. And when that siren sounded and to be involved and in being absolutely in the hub of the excitement, next level, uh, boyhood dream stuff. And I didn't even play. I was just the boundary rider. And Andrew Embley, the rightful winner of the Norm Smith. Big game player, absolutely. Um, I don't think you could take it away from him. I think he kicked a couple of goals, you know, 20-odd possessions. Look, there were some really good performances on the day. Um, Bo Waters had a huge grand final, absolutely huge grand final for, for one of the youngest players on the ground. And there were so many others, and Dean Cox dominated in the hitouts. But, yeah, I thought Andrew Embley was the standout. Two goals, 20-odd possessions, some clutch moments in the game. You know, that's one thing that Embers did throughout his career is perform well in big games. And, yeah, he played an exceptional role. I think he kicked a couple of goals as well, pushing forward and, you know, had a real impact. And, and then, as you mentioned, steadied the ship for us late, which he did numerous times throughout throughout his career as well. You know, those one percenters, a lot of one percenters aren't judged in Norm Smith medal time. But it was, uh, I think if you took your time over again, maybe the last quarter of Daniel Chick probably deserves some votes. He was awesome. Having been lucky enough to have uh, played in a premiership, uh, it was just knowing what those players had uh, achieved together and how they were going to feel about it. It was like, this is a pretty special moment in your um, footy career. You guys really deserve to enjoy it. Up on the podium when you and Juddy and then Ben comes up and does his little thing. What are your memories of that? He was still a very integral part of um, how hard we'd work to get to that grand final. And I thought it would be nice for him to get up and share that moment for for that brief time as the captain would hand over the, the reins to Juddy um, before the rest of the boys jumped up there with them. Really special. Yeah, really special. I, I think I got criticised for not being happy enough and he got criticised for being too happy. Um, so you're always, you're always upsetting someone. But every AFL player, you know, bar the, the Irishman and the Americans, I guess, have grown up watching football and, and wanting to be a part of that moment. So when it finally happens, I think it, it's reassurance that it, any sacrifices and hard work that have gone into your football have been worthwhile because you've been a part of such a, a special moment in, in your life, but your teammates' lives and, and the life of all those fans watching and so many other people that oh, it was just, yeah, incredibly special. I was, I was really struck at how many familiar faces I saw on that lap around the ground. You know, there might be guys you played football, with, you know, junior football with or against or, you know, the odd guy you went to school with or, you know, it was really interesting. It was probably 
20 people around the ground at different stages whose faces you, you sort of recognise from a different part of your life. And it, it just probably goes too quick. Uh, I think the, the current players, when they win a flag now, they probably lap it up even more than, than people did back then. They really enjoy that moment and, and string it out, and so they should because um, there's just a huge amount of hard work that goes into it, and you don't get very many moments like that in, in your life. And what does it mean to you now, all these years later, to be an AFL Premiership player? Uh, it means a lot. It's a great thing to have because it, it was a lot of hard work. If I wasn't playing AFL football, I loved playing VFL or Waffle footy. Bali was a huge impact in my life, and I was very fortunate and lucky to be in that position, as um, some weren't. So it was good. Hopefully some people got something out of it. That followed it closely. It's funny because I, I don't have much recollection post-game uh, other than being pretty exhausted and enjoying, you know, in the in one of the coaches' rooms, just some really quiet time with my uh, my wife and my eldest daughter who was over there. My younger two kids were still in Perth. So I was just, uh, just exhausted. Um, and that was probably the nicest time. It was like a 15-minute period. Um, when no one else was in this little room, um, just sitting there and sharing it with them. For the Sydney Swans, the contrast to the previous year was felt heavily. When the siren goes in both games, I'm with Adam. So in the five we won, six we lost. There's some great photos of hugging and the exhilaration, but there's also the photos of arm in arm and both, you know, the sadness of it. And like in 06, I can remember sitting on the ground post the game and getting tapped on the shoulder. I had my arm around Adam, said that I needed to go up and to speak up on stage. And I can remember vividly just looking at Adam and looking sort of the sadness and the, but he sort of, you'll be right. So it's kind of like, I'm with you. You don't need to say too much, but I'm alongside you. And that's, you know, that's what our friendship's about. Whilst Adam, you know, is such a special talent, he's he's just such a great man and a great person to be around. When you're sitting out in the G and the opposition team is getting presented with medals and I've sort of I've sat now in the coach's box in a couple of losing grand finals, so that it's, it's just a bloody hollow feeling. You just sort of want the ground to swallow you up. Um, but also it's the acknowledgement to go, okay, you're too good on the day and, and sort of stand there and yeah I guess accept it but then you don't want to accept it for too long because you want to get going again <laughs> yeah probably going to that finals our final series was probably a little bit easy um, we didn't have too many hard games if you know what I mean yeah. so and, and also having the week off before the grand final so there are only a couple of little things which you know may have taken a little bit off us but you know, going into the game, it was basically a complete reverse of the previous grand final. In the 06 one, you know, West Coast were all over us right from the start. And it wasn't us until we started to take some risk in the second half that we got within, um, you know, a point, you know, ultimately could have won it. But it just shows how, how difficult it is just to do back to back. The MCG is one of those places that really do, you know, it's magical moments. And then you talk about 06 and I think about that when I walk through the MCG I go, it could have been two-time premiership player here. One point. One bloody point. <laughs> but then you talk to the guys over at West Coast, they're probably going back the other way, going, damn, we lost that one by three points. And again, I haven't watched the game. Um, and it's I just going back on little bits and pieces. So, you know, when that you, got, you play the replays of the old games yep. every, every yep. now and then, like 
when it's on, you don't watch it. Like my son will watch it. He'll go, Dad, is this the one you won or lost? <laughs> <laughs> and then and he'll he might sit down and watch it. But um, yeah, I don't think any of the lads have watched 06. Oh, I just it's not relevant. It's not. It's a game. We might sit back and watch it when we're you know in our fifties or something. But I, I've got no, I've got no energy or time to watch it. I don't think it's. I don't. I think most players like that. You know, when you get belted, you get absolutely smashed, and you've got to sort of go, okay, we can't put that effort again. So you go through the bits and pieces of why we lost by 50, 60, 70, 80, 100 points, whatever it is, and you go, that's not good enough. So you've got to address some things there. When you left one, lost by a point, there's, there's a couple of instances and a few little things, a tap on here, a fumble here, a missed tackle there. You know you've left it out on the, on the ground. You know you've done your absolute best, and you've... And you, and you know deep down in yourself when you look yourself in the mirror that you had a crack at it. Everyone knows that. So yeah, there's no, I don't think there's any, there's any need for it. Right, one day I will. There's no doubt I will. But right now, still bitter. <laughs> it's getting cranky. We won one in 05 and they won in, one in 06. In, in a strange way, it probably validated what we did over that period. Because I remember there's a little bit of noise around, yeah, the Swans didn't have any injuries, they didn't make any changes, they were a little bit lucky in 05. That was never the case after we we got to 06. So we got so much more credibility out of 06 going back to back. Because I think people realised, well, one's, you know, it's, it's hard, but you can maybe sneak one. But people said, no, nah, you can't go back to back, you know, grand finalists unless you've got an incredible team um, and it was the same type of game you know and and a little bit different because they got off the chain in the second and they were rampant in that game so for us to pull it back and ironically probably should have won 06 and lost 05 where the ball was but for us to get back and to be able to play like that you know over a two-year period and longer because we'd had a sustained period of success but I remember thinking as great as the disappointment was the pride in the players to continue to endure and continue to play for each other and continue to just establish what the Bloods culture was about was a really defining moment. And going to the press conference, I was super proud of the team. And in the end of the day, we just got beaten by a team equally deserved to win a premiership as we did. Um, but yeah, it was a great rivalry. And I think when you look back on it, as much as I would have won, loved to win too, and I'm sure Wisher would have loved to win too, yeah, a fair result during that period, given the rivalry was we won one and they won one. Despite his pride in the 06 victory, Dean Cox is one eagle not entirely satisfied. To walk away with, with one flag each is, is probably um, the, the fair result. We didn't keep our team together long enough, I suppose, when we were coming into our prime and for multiple reasons. And um, unfortunately, you know, and then if you look at the sides we might have had to play, the Geelong and Hawthorne, you probably had to beat your best anyway. And, um, 07 we found out that without a number of our players who were injured throughout the finals campaign that we fell short so um, yeah it's one something that you constantly think about but um, yeah who knows well Goss of course Ben is not the only West Coast player from that team who's had troubles in their life and there's been plenty of commentary about it all so how is that flag thought of now do you think I think there has been talk since that time that people have said oh it was a tainted premiership I'm not so sure it was and you can understand the outside noise from people who are critical of Ben, Daniel Chick, Adam Hunter's had his moments, Daniel Kerr's had his moments. And you can't argue with the history and what happened 
and what's happened away from the footy field, and then you sort of inject, so to speak, what's happened during their playing days, what's come out after that. At the end of the day, West Coast Eagles fans are still proud of what they achieved. There are some concerns about life after football for a number of those. Some have straightened themselves out, which is absolutely brilliant. I think the care for those players is paramount going forward. I think they're very close uh, behind the scenes. The Michael Braun has led uh, very much a, a part of that. Darren Glass, Bo Waters, Rowan Jones, they're all quality people. They're all trouble-free people away from the troubled times of the West Coast Eagles and those players that we've mentioned. But, yeah, it is tinged, I would say, with some sadness with some of the uh, derailed lives of some of those footballers from 2006. But let's hope that the Premiership does one thing for all that group and it always brings them together as a group of, uh, of soldiers who battled manfully in what was without doubt one of the greatest grand finals of all time. When you look back then, Chris, what was Wisher like for you as a coach? He was just brilliant for me. I almost feel like he acted a bit like a moral compass for me at a, you know, when you're a teenager, which you are, when you go to get drafted in an AFL club, you're still working out what's what in the world and what you believe in and, and what you value and, and have someone like Wusha, I guess, guiding me or, or steering me through that time in my life is something I'm, I'm particularly grateful for. And even tactically on the day, like he did some things that were incredibly courageous in hindsight. He had a, a view at the time, one thing we tried to do is if teams put loose numbers in our forward line, he was happy to to turn that into a seven-man forward line or even an eight-man forward line. And he'd been clear on that all year. And it was interesting on that grand final day, he actually changed it up and put uh, David Rapando behind the ball and tried a few other tactics, which we hadn't used all, all year, which when you think of the, the courage to be able to do that on the, the biggest stage, yeah, I, I think it's incredibly brave and, and one of the testaments to, to why he's such a brilliant coach. I remember when we drafted Chris Judd and that was my first year. We just recruited Chris Judd, but then I was getting to know Daniel Kerr and obviously I knew Ben really well, but I hadn't actually coached him. I remember saying through that first year, 2002, that the Australian public deserved to see these guys in a grand final because I know they'll put on a special show. So I sort of felt an obligation to get this team going well enough that Judd and co would be out on the MCG for the game, not not just for West Coast supporters, but, you know, we all love to see great games and the great players out on the big stage. And I thought, yeah, we've got an obligation to get these guys and let everyone see how good they are. So when we did that and then won it, it was, uh, you know, just, just a really special feeling of, again, years of building up to it, not just this was a good year. It, it was a culmination of those guys having great individual careers, but but getting to feel what team success was was all about. West Coast Eagles coach John Warsfold there rounding out our two-part special on the amazing AFL Grand Finals of 2005 and 2006. A big thanks to Woosher and Paul Roos, as well as star players Chris Judd, Dean Cox, Michael Braun, Stephen Armstrong, Michael O'Loughlin, Leo Barry and Brett Kirk, as well as commentator and boundary rider on the day, Mr Perth, Tim Gossage. Thanks too to the AFL for the use of the Channel 10 audio from the day. 
Don't forget, you can subscribe to the show on Apple, Google and Spotify podcasts and leave us a review. Or join the conversation on Twitter at MCC underscore members. Don't forget to keep an eye out for our very special Tom Hafey episode coming up. We hope you have a great grand final day and it won't be long before we're all back at the gym.